I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. The crunch of fallen leaves underfoot, the rustle up above as wind whistles through the canopy, the crows, chirps and pitter-patter of unknown creatures lurking just out of sight. These are just some of the sounds found in the depths of the forest. But how can we recreate this vivid canopy at home in our own gardens? That's what permaculturist and garden designer Pippa Chapman will be talking us through as she shares how to make your own backyard forest garden. And wildlife expert James Lowen is back to detail the rarer animals that lurk in our hugely diverse British woodlands, from the depths of Caledonian pine forests to the birch woods of Deeside. And before we leave you, We'll also be answering your most asked horticultural questions about trees with our crack team of genius advisors who'll be providing you with crucial tips that you'll need this season. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. Pippa Chapman is an RHS-trained garden designer who set her sights on transforming her home turf into an abundant and diverse forest garden. But first, what even is forest gardening? Forest gardening is really part of permaculture gardening, so it's a method within a wider framework of gardening. So permaculture is very much about all sorts of things, not just gardening. It's very much about sort of culture, about how we live our lives, how we run our businesses, how we interact with other people, as well as gardening. So it's very much about an ethical approach and a sustainable approach to every part of our lives. I think a lot of people find forest gardening a slightly confusing term because you're not actually creating a forest, you're taking inspiration from the structure of a forest, the ecology of a forest, the fact that it has many layers. A field of corn is just very flat, it's all growing in one plane, whereas a forest has things growing on all layers, right from growing root crops in the ground, plants that grow their main fruiting part in the ground, all the way up to ground cover and herbaceous layers, the shrub layer, and then you get small trees and large trees. And then you get climbers that grow between all of those layers as well. So it's sort of learning about the ecology of a natural woodland and being inspired by that and trying to take that inspiration and apply it to growing food in our own gardens. 
So I know that some people feel that to be a true forest garden, you must include all of these seven layers, but particularly in small forest gardens, which is the scale that I tend to work at, you know, you can't fit a large tree in a garden because that would basically take all of the sun off the entire garden and you would barely be able to grow anything underneath. So it's really more about taking the ecology of a forest, the ecology of a woodland, and sort of trying to use some of those ideas and apply that to growing in our own gardens. I think when I first began, I felt this need to somehow make every single plant within the forest garden edible, that I you know, couldn't include anything else. And I think over, the ta- over time, I can see that forest gardening is not just about food, because I know another term for forest gardening is food forest. But for me, I feel that forest gardening is a better term because it doesn't limit you to growing food crops. So I've been designing forest gardens based around weaving and natural dyeing plants, apothecary forest gardens. So they don't always have to be about food. And you also have to remember, particularly if your forest garden is going to be in your main garden right outside your house, It's important to enjoy forest gardens as well. I think my mission to get more people to grow forest gardens within their own garden, you know, for me, it's really important that they look beautiful as well. It's not just about them being purely functional. So a forest garden can simply be based around one tree. So if you have a very, very small space and maybe even just one raised bed, you can still take the forest garden principles and create something which will increase biodiversity and encourage wildlife into the garden. So if you want to just start with, you know, one tree, say an apple tree, and that could be a dwarf tree as well, if you have a really small space or you're growing in, as I say, a container or a raised bed, and you could even wall train it if you're really struggling for space. So you can start with this one tree as your main point. Then you need to think about what your conditions are like. So there are actually plenty of edible perennial plants that will grow in shade as well. I have a black currant which barely ever sees the sun and it still fruits every year. You know, red currants, gooseberries will grow in shade. So have a think about what your conditions are in your garden as well. So then start to build around that. So think of a fruiting shrub, as I said, gooseberry or red currant or something like that, or a black currant. And then you can Think of the layers underneath that. So you might decide to have something like some different types of herbs, so sage or rosemary. And then underneath that, ground cover plants, something like wild strawberry, which scrambles around. Or there's bugle, which is an ajuga. It has edible leaves as well. And the flowers are just fantastic for bees. And then you've got things that grow in the root zone as well. So I really love things like camassia is one of my absolute favorites. So the bulbs are actually edible. You can roast them and eat them, although they're so pretty that I still haven't actually managed to bring myself to eat them. But, you know, bulbs are fantastic in small spaces because they sort of will sit below everything else. They'll pop up in the spring and they'll do their thing and then die down whilst everything else 
grows for the rest of the summer. So things like that are really valuable for small spaces. So you can see how you don't just have to think, oh, I've only got room for one tree because actually within that space, underneath that, you can fit all sorts of other things within that space as well. So it's sort of trying to use the vertical space as much as possible to get started. And in urban spaces as well, where you don't necessarily have much space, you know, don't need to worry really too much about pollinators for your fruit trees because the likelihood is that those insects are likely to be finding other fruit trees nearby as well. So, you know, I know a lot of people panic and say, oh, I haven't got room for two fruit trees to pollinate each other. And you could choose a family tree where you get two different varieties grafted onto the same tree that can pollinate each other. But actually, it's not something you need to worry about too much unless you're living in a really remote area. So if you've got an existing garden, but you're really feeling inspired to transform into a forest garden, there's no need to rip the entire garden out and start again. You know, you can start really slowly just putting the odd thing in, a black currant here, another apple there, you know, maybe some more herbs in place of some of the perennial flowering plants. And you can very slowly build up to a forest garden. It doesn't have to be a sudden transformation. I think it's something that if you don't want to impact the existing wildlife that you already have in your garden, it's better to do these things slowly. And that way you can really transform an ornamental garden into a forest garden, but without it breaking the bank or your back. Thanks, Pepper. Forest gardening, well, it can be whatever you like, really. There's a whole range of kinds of forest gardening, from agroforestry, which is trees grown in a farm landscape, right through to permaculture gardens, which can be tiny little plots of tall climbing plants and trees. So it all comes under the same sort of umbrella. It's a kind of continuum of ways of gardening. One of the reasons people are particularly interested in these ways of gardening is because by doing these, you tread very lightly on the planet. You're actually mimicking natural processes. I would say that although they're very light on the planet, they're not particularly productive ways of gardening. The main restraint, I think, in Britain is lack of light. As soon as you have a tree, it casts shade, and the shade really limits what will grow underneath the tree or near the tree and how productive that plant will be. So I think that is the main constraint on, on forest gardening or permaculture as I see it. However, it's not all or nothing. You can quite easily have ordinary vegetable garden and soft fruit plantation in the best lit areas of your garden and perhaps just an area of forest gardening, native trees, climbers, subshrubs, bulbs in the more shaded part of your garden. So you get all the benefits of wildlife, a little edible produce, but your garden remains productive. Whenever I say things like this, people tend to get very angry. You have to follow the true faith or nothing. But I'm happy to say that permaculturists are much more easygoing. So if you want something that's fun, low maintenance, good for wildlife and easy to do, consider using some of Pippa's ideas and for a bit of inspiration in your own garden. I think we can all agree that what makes a forest a forest is not just its vegetation, but also its wildlife. And though we may often think of far-flung places like the Amazon as being the home of exciting fauna, right here in the UK, many rare and interesting species thrive. So to find out more, we heard from wildlife expert and author James Lowen. 
So in Britain, we're lucky enough to be blessed with a whole range of different forest types, from the so-called rainforests of the western side of the country to beech forests in drier areas, particularly on chalk. But my favourite, I think, is the Caledonian pine forests of northern Scotland. So you're talking roughly the area south of Inverness towards Aberdeen. So Speyside, and in particular the Abernethy Forest, an absolutely wonderful place. So th these are ancient, ancient pine trees with a whole raft of berry-producing shrubs growing on the floor beneath them. It's a very quiet place, it's a very still place, but it's a place that gradually, as you spend time there, reveals its secrets, reveals its wildlife. And there's two species of creature, British creature, that I'm particularly fond of that occur almost exclusively in this habitat. The first is the capercaillie. Now, the capercaillie is a very large turkey-like bird whose male is huge and black and performs a quite remarkable performance, strutting around an arena, sort of singing away to females. I call it a song, and I guess the females perceive of it as a song, but it's really a whole series of noises from reverberating drum rolls to popping champagne corks, to even a kind of voluminous belch kind of thrown in there. Quite a remarkable experience. <coughs> The capercaillie, unfortunately, it's already gone extinct once in the UK, but it was reintroduced two or three centuries ago. But again, it's suffering and its population is declining. And the latest survey by the Nature Department of the Scottish Government, I think, found that there were just 540 capercaillies left in the entire of Scotland. And in part, that's due to birds flying into fences put up to exclude deer and colliding with them and dying. It's in part due to disturbance from people, both people inadvertently letting their dogs off a lead and the dogs chasing the capercaillies, but also to bird watchers who are too keen to see them and progressing too close to these wonderful creatures. So there's a whole host of work going on in Scotland now trying to reverse that decline of the capercaillie. better story comes from an amazing moth called the Kentish Glory. Now, the Kentish Glory, you would think its name suggests it might live in the southeast of England, and it did up until about 1970. But for the last 50 years or so, it's occurred exclusively in this Caledonian pine forest and the surrounding birch forest in particular in the Deeside area of Scotland. This is an amazing creature. It's a moth probably about half the size of your little finger. So that's quite a large moth. It's nothing like the Capercaillian size, clearly, but quite a large moth. And it's garbed in these luxuriant robes of auburn and chestnut and silvery white. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful creature with these amazing antennae, these dealy boppers for antennae that the male uses to kind of check out where the females are and rush to their service to create the next generation. This is a moth that pretty much every conservationist thought was probably going to go extinct in Britain. It had already been lost from England and it's only hanging on this area of Scotland. But recently, keen conservationists, keen insect folk, keen moth-related folk have discovered it to be a lot more widespread than previously thought. And they've worked out what type of forest it loves. And it turns out to be, it particularly loves young birch trees. So now conservationists in the Cairngorms and beyond are helping bring back this moth by providing advice to forest landowners around the area about how to manage their land, to manage their forest, to help not just the Kentish glory, but other wildlife too.
One of the most exciting and important valuable things about the forest is not just a single structure, it's a whole host of microstructures, layers we call them. The creatures that live on the ground in the ground layer, so your plants growing up, your bluebells in your English woodlands, your deer browsing at the lower level, they're very different to the creatures that occur higher up in a tree. So as you go up the tree, up your wonderful great big trunk, you'll start to see creatures such as tree creepers hanging around on these biggest trunks. And if you go up a little bit further, you go up on some of the main branches, that's the domain of the woodpeckers. So our green woodpeckers, our great spotted woodpeckers, our lesser spotted woodpeckers, and our nuthatches, a sort of closely related tree-loving bird. But my favourite part of a tree, where there's the most life, is the canopy. It's the most luxuriant part of the tree. It's the most effervescent, but it's also the most wildlife rich. So this is where most of the caterpillars for the moths and the butterflies live. And accordingly, that's where most of the birds have their nests. So the blue tits that eat the moth caterpillars will have their nests up in the canopy. And it's also so special because that's where the secrets are. We are down at ground level. We are looking up. We feel as if we cannot be part of that canopy experience. So the canopy of a tree is where its wildest parts are, where life goes on despite our presence. And that's why I find the canopy of all these layers in the forest, the canopy is the most special. So if you're smitten by forest as a sort of transportative experience, then why not consider playing around with layers in your own garden, bring a bit of that learning from forests down to your own space. And uh, you can do that by really maximising the space. Think in three dimensions, not just two. You know, we tend to think of our surface area, our extent of our lawn and our borders. But try and think vertically as well. So try and create different structures. So tall grasses create visual impact, but they also create space for grasshoppers to flourish, for grass veneer moths to flourish, for bees to kind of root around from your lawn and, and feed on the little flowering plants that come up in between but also think in terms of wild areas. So you can create a bit of structure by just letting dead leaves lie for a little bit longer than you would have. How exciting it would be if you found a hedgehog making its little nest within. And then you can think of bushes and think of flowering plants at different heights, try and keep that sort of skyscraper effect with interest for both your eyes, your nose, but also for wildlife at these different heights. And even if you can't grow a tree, then you can sort of think vertically. Hazel is, is quite a good one. It may not make tree size but by gosh it will make a wonderful hedge and provide some visual impact and plenty of places for nature to reside too. So bring a little bit of that forest concept, that forest love into your own garden and create a space for nature. We don't need to restrict our visits to forests to the archetypal spring and summer months, those months of plenty where there are birds singing left, right and centre and there are flowers blooming and all the rest of it. Go out in winter as well. If you go and visit a yew forest or any other tree with year-round vegetation, there's always some greenery to kind of entice your eyes and to kind of boost your mood. But even if you go out when there are simply the skeletons of trees, deciduous trees that are devoid of all their leafy cover, there's excitement there, there's stark visual experiences. And if you have to go out at night, you might even find moths hanging around on the trunks looking for love. And if love isn't a thing to think about in the winter months, I don't know what is.
To hear more insight and tales from James, pick up a copy of his book, Much Ado About Mothing, A Year Intoxicated by Britain's Rare and Remarkable Moths. James mentioned the forest layers, trees at the top, low-growing plants further down, and that's exactly what we do in gardens. And if you want to add layers in your own garden, just think about the principles that James mentioned. For example, evergreen shrubs do really well under deciduous trees. So things like camellias and mahonias and evergreen berberus, these are all good plants that'll give you a layer. And of course, it's easy to introduce bulbs. I wouldn't introduce bluebells. They can become a pesky weed in the garden and still less Spanish bluebells. But other bulbs, grape hyacinths, for example, dwarf narcissi, wood anemones, the cultivated anemone bulbs, these all make great ground level layers for the garden. Plants of forest situations tend to be quite shy and retiring because they have to fight for light with the trees overhead. But one that is particularly attractive and easy to grow is called Virginia or elephant's ears. It has large green leaves that are often bronze, tend to redden in the winter, and lots of flowers in the spring. When planting forest gardens, I always like to put plants just where the drip line of the trees is. Trees are like an umbrella. It's dry underneath them, but the drip line as the water trickles down the foliage is a very moist area, and that's a particularly good area to plant your bagenias. So that's my go-to forest plant, and one that will work in most gardens to give year-round interest. It's easy to get massively excited by concepts such as forest gardening and overindulge with a metre-long shopping list of plants you're planning to buy. But if you've got great ambitions for a forest of your own, complete with gorgeous trees, you're going to need some advice. Which is why we sat down with three experts to hear about their frequently asked tree questions and the top tips they'd like to equip you with. Some jobs and tasks that people are often asking us about in November. One of the really common ones that comes up is trees, and tree planting can certainly be done through the winter. But what other tasks, sort of care tasks, might we be looking at for trees in winter, Nikki? If you've got a tree that's only been in a short while, planted in the last couple of years, you'll still want to check whether it still needs staking or not. Check that the stake is still in firmly and also check the tree tie because often if they're not loosened as the tree grows, then they start to cut into the bark of the tree and that can be detrimental. So you need to check your tree ties, check that they're close round the stem of the tree, but also give enough room for it to move very slightly. So as we're getting windier and windier weather, it is really important to check your tree stakes. And sometimes you might want to keep your tree stake for three or four years until it becomes established, especially in exposed areas. What about the area around trees? If you're planting, is there anything else we could do? Do we do soil improvement at this time of year or is that something we'd leave till later in the year? Soil improvement really is for the spring, February onwards. So you can feed your trees with Gromor or Vitax Q4 and then mulch around the base about 10 centimetres deep, but you must keep it away from the trunk. Now, lots of people will start thinking about trees and indeed shrubs for winter interest. So we often get people at this time of year asking us about trees with good stem colour, such as birches. But what other shrubs or trees could you recommend for people if they're thinking of planting something specifically for some winter interest? Nikki? 
One of my favourites is witch hazel. I think there's some absolutely fantastic cultivars and you get those big sort of spidery yellow flowers or orange flowers. A lot of them have a really nice scent as well. And certainly the ones here at Wisley are amazing. But they are a really beautiful plant for winter flowering. And the leaves in the summer as well are slightly crinkly like a crisp And I think the leaves are really interesting and they have good autumn colour. So well worth thinking about. And I'm going to add a couple of plants to this list as well. Mahonias, I think, are often overlooked and they're actually really good plants for difficult areas. So a mahonia can grow really well in sort of poor soils in a shady location. Winter flowering, scented again, good for wildlife, particularly um, when you see on some winter days the odd bumblebee still flying around They love a Mahonia. It really helps give them some sustenance. So that's Mahonias. We also get quite a lot of people asking us for some fast-growing, perhaps evergreen trees that can help give them some privacy or coverage. Now, sometimes with the evergreens, winter planting isn't necessarily the best time. Often with evergreens, we might suggest to people that they wait a bit till the spring. But any suggestions for some evergreen trees that can help provide some privacy? Michaela? An evergreen tree, Cotoneaster, they grow quite fast. They're ideal. They have flowers in spring, but then they have berries in the autumn, which the birds do love. You could also think about something like a eucalyptus, eucalyptus gunnii. They're not very dense, but they are evergreen. You get a lovely scent from the leaves as well. You can control the height of them very easily by pruning. So if you only want them to get to a specific height, that might be three or four metres that's not a problem. You can prune them every year. You can almost pollard them, in fact. So they do grow quite fast. Don't plant them in a windy, exposed situation, though, because they are one of those trees that can fall over in a strong wind. Interesting suggestions, those, because, again, lots of people might be put off with the eucalyptus because they just perceive it as that big tree. They don't realise that if you prune it, you can actually control the size and it increases the bushiness of the plant. And the cotoneasters, uh, lots of people will be familiar with the shrubby types or the ground cover types, but it's such a big genus that there are lots of other types that are tree-like or large shrubs. So they're really good suggestions. We also get a lot of questions around November about protecting tender plants. And this year, people may be thinking about it a little bit later than they might usually because of the quite warm autumn period that we've had. And some plants, if they're small enough, may be moved into unheated greenhouses or conservatories or things like that. But what about the bigger plants that may be in the garden or that are too heavy to move? Nikki, how would we go about protecting things like that? Generally, we can wrap things like that. I'm actually thinking of bananas and maybe even tree ferns. So you can take the leaves back, this year's leaves back, and wrap them with fleece and straw. And it's important to put a sort of waterproof top over that, and that might be a piece of tarpaulin or similar. But I would say don't wrap when it's very wet because you're wrapping the moisture in and that can cause them to rot. Again, it's been very mild this year and certainly I think in the tropical garden here at Wisley, the bananas appear to have gone bananas, don't they, this year and are taking over. So it might be that you can leave it a little bit later to wrap them in the southeast and wait for them to dry out a bit. But if you're in a different area of the country when it's colder, you really want to get them done before the frosts start to arrive. 
I'm planning on doing my tree fern probably in the next week or so, which is maybe a little bit later than I would normally do it. And as you say, the important things there with things like tree ferns is protecting the crown, where the new growth will come from in the spring. So I normally will tie up the fronds and then pack the crown with either straw or something that will help insulate, but not too densely because you don't want to damage that crown. And then some people might fleece the actual trunk itself, but it's actually the crown that's the really important part there. But don't do what some people do, which is try and cover the entire plant with polythene or with bubble wrap or something like that, because that does make the plant sweat and that can promote rotting, can't it, Kayla? Yes. The other thing with tree ferns is that if we do get a mild winter and they are out in the garden, if you've got one in a container, if they're out in the garden, that's fine because they can get the moisture from the air. But if you've moved your tree fern inside to an unheated greenhouse, occasionally do water the stems because they need some moisture through the winter. They won't like their stems from drying out often a little misting or if your greenhouse has got plenty of other plants in I find that the humidity that's created by those other plants respiring gives you enough humidity in the air to keep the fern moist they don't want to dry out if they dry out completely as you say that can stunt the growth for the following year so that was lots of tips for November and there's lots of planning to start doing and there are some plants that you might start propagating at this time of year as well. So it's all kind of looking ahead and planning what may happen in your gardening year to come. Thanks there to James, Nikki and Michaela. I'll be really pleased if after all our talk about trees today, you go out and plant a tree and that tree will go on for decades and in 50 years time, people will picnic underneath it or be gazing up at the birds in it or picking a little fruit from it. Who knows? Well, that's about it for today. At this time of year, the hard work is sort of more or less over, really. Nowadays, we tend not to dig the garden in the autumns they did in the past. We tend to either not dig it at all or lightly cultivate it in the spring. But there's still time to get the bulbs in, especially tulips and hyacinths. And I've been planting shallots and garlic. I'm lucky. Where I live, I've got a very sandy soil. That means drought in the summer, which isn't so lucky. But it also means the soil doesn't get sticky in the winter. So I've been able to get out there, getting on with things, planting, cleaning up, and it's all relatively easy. But if you've got a clay soil that's sticky, you can always work from boards or invest in a sheet of exterior plywood, which is what we do at Wisley. So we've got a nice working platform so we can work on the borders without damaging the grass. There's always a reason to be gardening. And as these months get darker and gloomier, a bit of gardening keeps me cheerful and happy. But that's all for now. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. 
and the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on, and I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 